open up with prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, we pray that as we are reviewing the content we learned last year from the Old Testament, we, we ask that you would um, bring these things back to our mind, give us a sense of clarity and freshness, and um, pray that these students would be able to walk in and have the energy they need to focus on, on uh, their tasks for the day. Um, we ask that even as we're doing a quick overview of the Old Testament, that you would give us a sense of awe concerning your word. You're, you're a God who is bigger than we can imagine. Uh, but you have been delighted not to stand far away from us, but to draw near, uh, to give us your word, to reveal yourself to us. And for that, we thank you. Um, be with us now as we open up this study, for it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. All right, so yesterday we did the first part of this uh, uh, overview and, and outline. Um, we, we went through these first five points. Um, again, remember that this is really good stuff for, for quizzes and tests over the next uh, week or so, okay? Um, so we went over creation, uh, how mankind was made in God's image, but mankind fell to represent God the way that we were supposed to. We fell into sin, and that hurt not only Adam and Eve, but hurt everyone after Adam and Eve, all of us, uh, and, and even hurt the rest of creation as well. Um, God, as a, as a good ruler over the earth, as things got progressively worse, uh, couldn't just turn a blind eye to it all. He was moved to action, and the action that he eventually executed on, on the earth was the flood. Noah and his family, by grace, were safely brought through the waters of the flood, but things didn't get better. Mankind fell back into the exact same sins that they had committed the first time around in this climax, when one very powerful nation called Babylon, or Babel because English translations like to confuse you sometimes, really don't know why they do that. It's spelled the exact same way. In, at any time in the later Old Testament, you see Babylon, Hebrew, spelled the exact same way as it is in Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. That, that doesn't make sense to me. Um, but, but this is... Um, you know, kind of the, the big, bad nation right after the flood, they become incredibly powerful. They try to build a tower up to heaven. Does it work very well? No. The text kind of makes fun of them for it. You know, God is like squinting down to try to see what they're doing, uh, which is one of my favorite pictures in the, in the entire Old Testament. Um, you know, uh, but the languages are confused. People are spread out. Um, but again, God shows his, his mercy and patience towards humanity um, because he appears to a guy who is living in Babylon in the middle of worshiping idols and God speaks to him and says, leave this land and leave these gods, follow after me and go to the land that I've promised you. And that guy, of course, was Abraham. The biggest promise that God gives to Abraham, uh, he promises him descendants like the, the stars of the heaven and the sands on the sea. He promises him uh, the land of Canaan. He promises to give him a great name. But the biggest problem, of, not problem, biggest promise of all, is he says, Abraham, I will bless you, and through you, I'll bless all the families of the earth. Right? So Abraham is kind of a, a, a mediator of blessing. Right? God is going to bless Abraham, and then that blessing will spread uh, kind of spread off and touch all the other families of the earth as well. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and put up here the biggest promise is that God will bless the world through Abraham. Um, by the end of Abraham's life, 
Does it really look like any of those promises have been fulfilled? Not really. Uh, he has a couple of kids. Uh, he has Ishmael and he has Isaac. And then he has a few other kids from uh, after Sarah dies, Abraham gets some of those uh, look like a wife, talks like a wife, not a wife, concubines, right? Um, and he has some, some illegitimate children with them. Um, but his offspring don't, like, don't look like the, the stars of the heavens and the sand of the sea. And he owns a very small portion of the promised land, and he gets really ripped off, and that's the only way he can own it. Do you guys remember that story? We did, like, math to see how much in, like, modern dollars he, he, he spent for, like, an acre with a cave. Yeah, and it, was, it was absurd. I don't remember how much it was, but um, I look forward to going over that with the Old Testament again this year. Um, and by the end of the story, does it really look like Abraham's blessed? Would you look at that guy and be like, oh, yeah, that guy's living the high life. No. And does it look like he's brought blessing to the entire world? Thank you. Does it look like he's brought blessing to the entire world? No. But all of those promises are passed down to one of Abraham's sons. Which son receives all of those promises? Isaac. Isaac. Uh, and then Isaac has twin sons. Someone else. What, what are his twin sons' names? Jacob and Esau, uh, which one of those receives all of the promises? Jacob, Jacob does. Uh, Jacob's name gets changed partway through the story. What does his name become? Israel. Israel. And he has sons that become the 12 tribes of Israel, sort of. Uh, it's a little bit more complicated than that, but, but roughly. Um, and by the end of Genesis, the story really starts to focus on one of Jacob's sons. Who is, who is the guy who is really at, at the focus? Who, who is the main character at the end of Genesis? Joseph. Joseph. And uh, Joseph, his brothers love him. He is like, you know, favorite sibling. They're getting him t-shirts made and coffee, right? I mean, unless you're sold to slavery. Yeah, <laughs> okay. Uh, why do they hate him so much? Yeah, he's daddy's favorite, so the rest of them don't like him. What does his dad give him? Yeah, the coat of many colors, right? Uh, which will always and forever remind me of Dolly Parton now. <laughs> you guys, do you guys know what I'm talking Okay, yeah. Uh, if you don't, I guess you can Google it. I wouldn't, I mean, like, I don't really think you need to Google it. It's not that great, but anyways. Um, so, um, you know, they are jealous of him. They're upset about him. It doesn't help that he also has this dream. And in the dream, is that what you were going to say, Isaac? Uh, I was going to ask if he was the one in the dream that he would rule over all of them. Yeah. Yeah, in this dream, uh, all of his, his, his mother and his father and his other siblings are bowing down to him. And, you know, if you ever have a dream like that, you know what you shouldn't do is go up to all your siblings and be like, hey, I had a dream last night that God made you bow down to me. You know, probably not a great way to make friends. Uh, so uh, <laughs> this is the teaching of the story of Joseph. You know, don't quote about your dream. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, so Joseph uh, is, is hated by his brothers. And so Joseph has a bad day one day. He, he's out in the field and his brothers are like, we need to take care of this guy. So they beat him up. They throw him in the bottom of a well. They fake his death. And then he has to listen while they have a debate where they're like, should we kill him? Yeah, we should kill him. No, no, no. We should at least make money off of him. Let's sell him into slavery. 
You know, um, I told my last class when we were doing this outline, um, you know, some, someday you're going to get done with school and you're going to think to yourself, wow, I had a really crappy day today. And you can remind yourself of Joseph's day and maybe that will help you feel a little bit better, right? <laughs> At least you weren't, you didn't have someone fake your death and throw you into slavery. Um, you know, uh, Mr. Rich kind of does something like that with the teachers. If we have a really bad day, he'll say, At least you weren't eaten by a shark today. And I, you know what? That is true. You know, so maybe that helps you have a better day whenever things go kind of so- sideways. All right? Um, you don't like that, do you? No. Well, yeah, you can't even feel bad about, you know, what happened because at least you're not Joseph, man. Yes. Who's the guy who got ate by the fish in the Old Testament? Jonah. Thank you. Yeah. All right. So Abra- uh, Joseph uh, is sold into slavery. What nation does he go to? Egypt. Egypt. Uh, right off the bat, do things go very well for him in Egypt? Not great. No. You know, he's uh, accused of adultery, thrown into prison, uh, which is, you know, another bad day. Um, and then through a series of events, though, the Lord works in the life of Joseph, and, and through a series of events, the guy all of a sudden finds himself second in charge in Egypt behind who? Pharaoh. Pharaoh. He's Pharaoh's right-hand man. And God reveals to Joseph that there's going to be a famine that comes upon the entire world pretty soon, and that allows Joseph uh, to start to prepare. Egypt is able to prepare. They're able to stockpile food. And whenever the famine comes... All of the nations of the earth are coming where to receive food? From who? Joseph. And all of a sudden, it kind of looks like one of Abraham's children is being a what? A blessing to the whole world. But Genesis ends on a really bad note because, uh, believe it or not, people don't live forever. So Joseph dies. And then... um, not only does Joseph die, but is Israel anywhere close to the land of Canaan? No. Where are they? They're in slavery in Egypt. And the end of Genesis tells you that all the nation of Israel is only 70 people. Does that look like a great nation that rivals the stars in the heavens and the sand on the seashore? No. So if the Bible ended after Genesis, would you have a very powerful proof of God's faithfulness? You would be asking the question, where are all of those promises that were given to Abraham? Right? Where are they? Uh, Would the Bible seem like very good news if Genesis was the end of the story? No. All of this, by the way, is Genesis 1 through 11. All of this is Genesis 12 through 50, which is the end of the book. So we pick up with our four more people section. Um, Who is the big hero of the Egypt story. Moses. Moses. God raises up a deliverer after Israel is in slavery for a very, very long time. He raises up a deliverer whose name is Moses. And through Moses, God does a lot of very powerful, mighty works. The ten plagues. And then, during the tenth plague, Israel is finally able to run out of the land of Egypt, but they get to a barrier. And what is the barrier called? The Red Sea. So God rips it in half and dry land appears. And then Israel passes through on the dry land and Pharaoh tries to follow. And then what does God do with the water? Yeah, he 
Pharaoh kind of throws himself into the sea, just as he was throwing you know, the Israelite babies into the sea in the beginning of the story. Um, in the book of Exodus, you find out that during these decades and even centuries that Israel was in Egypt, the nation grew exponentially. <coughs> and now they've been delivered, <coughs> excuse me, and now they've been delivered from the land of slavery, and they're being led by Moses. And where are they headed? Canaan. Canaan. Is it starting to look like some of those promises to Abraham are being fulfilled? Yes. It does. But throughout the, you know, I'm actually preaching a sermon series right now uh, on the wilderness wandering. And it's a little bit hard because every story is about the same. You know how the wilderness wandering goes? They go a little ways and then the people start complaining and blaspheming against God and then Moses is like, hey, you should really stop doing that. And then the people are like, oh, yeah, we're, well, we're going to do it even harder. And then they get to a point where, uh, you know, God is about to judge them, but the Lord provides and meets their needs. And then once God provides and meets their needs, you're like, oh, man, they're going to express Thanksgiving now. And instead, they just keep grumbling more. And then the next story is kind of the exact same way. What characterizes Israel in the wilderness? discontentment, complaining. And if they're complaining, what does that show about how they're interacting with God? Do, do they trust God to take care of them? No. Are they being obedient to the Lord? No. Unbelief, disobedience. Eventually, uh, they, they travel for a little ways and they come to a mountain called Sinai. And at Sinai, the Lord reveals his law to Israel and Moses also built something really nifty. What does he build? He does build an altar. Where does the altar go, though? In the tabernacle. In, in the tabernacle, or, or sometimes it's called the tent of meeting. It's the place where God promises to dwell among the people of Israel, right in the middle of their camp. And so they, they set off from Sinai. They go through the wilderness, being led by the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire with the tabernacle in their midst, having received God's law. And they do a lot better now, right? No, 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 they do worse. They get to the very border of Canaan. They're inches from the promised land. And Moses sends in 12 spies. And 10 of the spies come back, and what do they say? We can't do it. The, they have strong, fortified cities, they look like giants. We can't do it. Who are the two that say, yeah, we can do it? Caleb, who, by the way, is not even an Israelite, and Joshua. All right. They say we can do it, but the nation listens to the ten spies, not to Joshua and Caleb. And this is the point where God says, this generation that I brought out of Egypt in the Exodus will not enter the promised land of rest. They'll fall in the wilderness. Who are the two people out of that generation who don't fall in the wilderness and get to go into Canaan? Joshua and Caleb. Joshua and Caleb will lead them in. All right? Mainly Joshua. Uh, is Moses able to go in? No. Even Moses will fall and die. So uh, Israel wanders in the wilderness for how many years? Forty. Forty years. And at the end of the 40 years, Moses and that generation die off. And the new leader who will lead them into the promised land is 
Joshua. Not that one, the one in the Bible, (laughs) right? And even then we have to be kind of specific. There's this Joshua. There's another Joshua later in the Old Testament who is also sometimes called Jeshua. You guys remember him? Worked with Zerubbabel? Not a judge. No, after the restoration. Uh, And then there's a really, really important guy in the New Testament whose name is actually Joshua. Jesus. Yeshua, Jesus, Jesus, right? So um, Joshua leads them into the promised land. Do they do well under Joshua? Yeah, yeah, very positive. The book of Joshua is an, an incredibly positive book. Do they have mistakes? Yeah. Yeah, they do. But all in all, uh, under Joshua's leadership, the nation prospers. They drive out the Canaanites for the most part, uh, and they're able to settle in the land. Um, after Joshua dies, though, there's still some warfare to be waged, and Israel decides, no, we're not going to do it. After Joshua dies, they stop being as obedient to the Lord as they had been. What is the next period? Who is in charge in the next period? Judges. The judges. It's the dark days of Israel's history. Things go very badly in the days of the judges. And throughout the book of the judges, uh, that, that book continually tells you what would fix the problem. What is the solution according to the book of Judges? What does Israel need if they're going to do well? A king. They need a king. And they get a king. His name's Saul. Is that the king they need? No. No. What's the king that they need? David. David. So David is the next one that we're going to put up here. You would just need to remember in between here we have the, the period of the Judges. All right. David becomes king. And how does Israel do under David really really well for the most part is there a period when they don't do so well yeah Yeah. you know David uh, sins with Bathsheba and then there's the whole thing with uh, you guys remember that whole story with Ammon and Tamar and then Absalom pushes him off of the throne so there is a period where it's not so great but under David the kingdom is united And under David, God makes massive promises. He says, this promise to bless the world through Abraham is going to happen specifically through the lion and family of David. It'll be the Davidic king who is able to do this. He also promises David that David's son would build something. What would David's son build? The temple, temple, which is like the tabernacle on steroids, right? Uh, he would build the temple, and he promises David, uh, your descendant will be on the throne how long? All right. So David dies. Who becomes king? Solomon. Solomon's, the beginning of Solomon's reign, good or bad? Great. Uh, in fact, nations that had been fighting against Israel in the days of the judges and in the days of David, willingly submit to Israel under Solomon. They become vassal states. They basically say, hey, will you protect us and kind of rule over us and we'll pay you a lot of money to do it? That's a pretty good gig. Under Solomon, it says in the book of Chronicles that Jerusalem 
had streets of gold. What does that sound like? Heaven. It sounds like heaven. Now, does that probably mean that literally you go into Jerusalem in the days of Solomon and there is a slab of gold that you walk on? Probably not. What does it maybe mean that there were streets of gold? Where do you do business in these days? In the streets. In the streets. Okay? If, you're, if you do business in the streets and you're walking down the street and what are people doing their everyday normal business in? Yeah, they're, they're, they're doing it in gold. That's like the normal currency. What is our normal currency? Yeah, paper. All right? Um, if you have a lot of paper, you're happy because that means you're very, very rich, right? Um, imagine if you went into Walmart and people were doing all of their business in actual gold. What would that tell you about the state of that place? Yeah, they're like super rich. They're very prosperous. So what that's trying to tell you, I think, is that in the days of Solomon, Israel financially is doing what? Economically, what's happening? It's growing way up. Yeah, it's through the roof. It's incredible, right? They're doing great. Um, but there's an issue about this Solomon guy. He does build the temple, by the way. That's a good thing. But there's an issue about this guy. Um, Solomon, uh, he really, really likes women. Like a lot. Like he has how many wives? And, and how many uh, not wives, but kind of act like wives? Okay, so all total, he has, you know, a thousand women. Um, and uh, the book of Deuteronomy specifically said that kings should have no kings of Israel should have no affiliation with one country in particular. What country was it? Egypt. Egypt. And the book of Kings goes out of its way to tell you that one of Solomon's wives is Pharaoh's daughter. Yeah. So what's that tell you about this guy? Okay. There's some there's some red flags. Um, Solomon's wives worship foreign gods. Um, is it okay if you're an Israelite? Is it okay to marry unbelievers? If they repent. Yeah, it's okay to marry outside of Israel if the person is a believer. But if they worship false gods, if they've not left their false religion, are you supposed to intermarry with them? No. Have Solomon's wives repented and believed in the one true God? Yeah, probably some did, but, but Kings tells you a whole bunch of them didn't. And then they start coming to him and they start saying, Solomon, honey, we really wish there was a place where we could worship our idols. And Solomon says, well, I guess I can arrange that. So he starts building shrines to the false gods. And whenever the Israelites recognize, man, our king is building these altars to false gods, what do they start doing? They start doing the same thing. Yeah, they start going to those altars and worshiping. And Solomon introduces idolatry to Israel. And the Lord, in the next generation, uh, punishes Israel for this because of the sin of Solomon. Who is Solomon's son? Rehoboam. And uh, Rehoboam, (laughs) uh, there's a story where Rehoboam, uh, you know, he becomes king and Israel comes to him. 
and they say, uh, your father taxed the daylights out of us. Can you be a little bit gentler? And Rehoboam goes back and he talks with his advisors and the advisors who had worked for Solomon and now work for Rehoboam, what do they tell him to do? Huh? You should do it. You should should lighten the load on them. And then Rehoboam has some buddies and he says, hey, what do you guys think? What do the buddies tell him? Jackson Moore. Jackson Moore. Ray Boehm goes back and he says this. He says, my pinky finger is thicker than my father's thigh. I'll let you guys figure out what that means. Um, so basically the point is if you thought Solomon was this big, bad, cruel, cruel ruler. Just wait till you meet Rehoboam. So, what did the majority of the tribes do? Scream. Yeah, they decide not to submit to Rehoboam, and they set up a new king over them named? Jeroboam. Jeroboam. Rehoboam and Jeroboam. So, the next event that we have, we call the split kingdom. And you get the, the larger nation of Israel in the north. And what's the nation in the south called? Judah. 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 All right. So the kingdom splits. Uh, which one is legitimate? Which one has the, the, the Davidic king that God appointed? Judah. Judah. Um, Israel always does poorly. They always go after idols. Israel always has bad kings. Israel goes 0 for 20 with their kings. Judah, in the south, doesn't do great, but they have eight good kings, 12 bad ones. And they're the the legitimate nation. They're the ones who are submitting to the rightful ruler. And so, after this kingdom split, though, both nations continue in sin. Both nations largely continue in idolatry. And eventually, once again, the Lord is forced into action. And what's the next event? What does God do? How many? Does both... Which nation gets exiled? Israel. Israel first, and then what happens to Judah later? Yeah, so on this one, we put exiles, plural, to remind ourselves um, both nations get taken into exile. Where does the northern kingdom of Israel get sent? Okay. Someone else, where does Judah get sent? Babylon. Okay. So both of them get sent into exile. Uh, what would be the next point then? The deliverance. Deliverance, uh, the return, right? Or sometimes we call it the restoration. Uh, which of the nations returns? Judah. Judah. We put that one in the singular because uh, we remember that the northern kingdom of Israel never truly returned. All right, we'll talk about that a little bit more later. Um, but the southern kingdom of Judah does return. Uh, and then the, the last thing that happens after they return to the land, all right, they rebuild the temple, they rebuild Jerusalem, um, they have some prophets that speak to them and warn them against falling back into the same types of sin. And what is... Uh, What's the last thing that we usually put up here? Anybody remember from last year? Silent years. Yeah. How many? 400. 400 silent years. They're in the land, which is a good thing, but do they have a king? They don't. 
Not really. Why? Who's really in charge? Not yet. At the end of the Old Testament, who's really in charge? Babylon, right? And then Babylon is kind of, especially in the book of Daniel, is replaced by what nation? Who beats Babylon? Who? Someone said it. Who said that? Okay, good. Yeah, Persia, Persia, right? So um, they're in the land, but they don't really have a king yet um, because, you know, they're not really the ones in charge. Um, and, and, and so it's, it's like, it's kind of like this, like they're back in the land, but they still kind of feel like they're in bondage. They're back in the land, but they still kind of feel like exiles because they don't have complete freedom and autonomy in the land. And so what we need to do uh, in the remaining time, we have about 20 minutes. What we need to do in the remaining time is talk about this period. Because we're not, we're not sticking with Old Testament this year. We're moving on into the New Testament. Uh, if the story stopped right there, by the way, would, would the Old Testament just by itself present very good news? No. Not really. All right. Uh, Israel right here, are they satisfied with what's happened? No. They've had all of these promises, but they've not seen the fulfillment of the promises yet. Okay. So... We're getting into New Testament, which deals with the fulfillment of the promises. You, you could say um, Old Testament is the promises given, and, and New Testament is largely the promises fulfilled. So we need to take some time and talk about what happens in these 400 silent years. Um, why do things uh, kind of change so drastically uh, by the time we get to the New Testament? Okay. Get all of this erased. All right. Yes. For the formal people and the formal events, uh, what books of the Bible were they in? So, but uh, Genesis one through eleven for the first event. Yeah, this one here, uh, we we went Moses through Solomon, so that would be, um, you know, sort of roughly. Uh, that would be Exodus through First Kings, and then on this one over here, we're talking uh, the rest of First Kings. Through the through the end of the Old Testament, okay. You know the restoration books would be Ezra, Nehemiah. Um, uh, you know, even by the time Ezra and Nehemiah go back, Persia is the one in charge. That happens. Um, you know, that's why they're able to go back from the exile. I didn't say that very clearly a second ago. Babylon exiles them, and then um, Persia beats Babylon. And then Persia is the one that lets them go back into the land. So by the end of the Old Testament, Persia is still the one that's in charge. Uh, remember the story of Cyrus, and then um, you know even in Esther, who is you remember the the idiot king in Esther? You remember that last year? Looking at Ahasuerus, right? That guy's Persian. So by the end, Persia is the one in charge. Um, I didn't say that very clearly, and I apologize. Parties and stuff that no one showed up to. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and he's the one that um, he curtains. he tries to uh, yeah the cotton curtains and uh, the really uncomfortable couches and uh, Ahasuerus at one point you know his wife Vashti won't listen to him so he makes a decree and says every man is in charge of his own household and the irony is that really you know the king is telling the men what they have to do in the household so they're not really in charge you know. Um, 
Uh, oh man, that book is hilarious. Uh, there's all this stuff with Haman where he hates Mordecai so much. And he comes in and the king says, what should I do for the man I want to honor? And Haman is convinced it's about him. And he's like, here's all the things you should do. And then Ahasuerus is like, yeah, Haman, go do all of that stuff for your mortal enemy, uh, Mordecai. So uh, that, is, that is a funny book. So, all right, let's talk about the 400 silent years. Um, so, once again, at the end of the Old Testament, what nation is actually in charge? Persia. Persia. Who did Persia beat out? Babylon. Babylon, good. So, Persia is in charge. And Persia, let's just kind of be honest about it. Um, given Israel's relationship with other world powers, their relationship with Persia is pretty good. Persia is the one that lets them go back to the land. Persia is actually willing to finance the, the rebuilding of the temple. They don't wind up doing it because the Israelites take all of that stuff, and what do they do with it instead? They build their own houses, right? Um, but, but Persia, um, you know, especially late in the book of Nehemiah, um, Persia for a second thought that Israel was rebelling against them, but, but by the end of the book of Nehemiah, they recognize that uh, the, the Jews are being oppressed, and Persia comes to their defense, and says, no, you have to let them rebuild the, the city, right? The relationship with Persia is quite a bit better than the relationship with really any of the other world powers up until this point or after this point. Uh, the bad news for the Jews is that Persia, during the 400 silent years, doesn't get beaten. They get absolutely wrecked. By who? Actually, Babylon kind of takes care of Assyria. So we're not dealing with Assyria anymore. All right. Yeah, they get beaten by this guy. He's pretty great. Um, really great. He thinks he's great. He names everything after himself. Alexander the Great, who is king of what nation? Macedonia or Greece. We're just going to keep it kind of simple. So we've got Greece. Um, Greece... And um, Greece and Israel do not get along. Anybody know why? Uh, the Greeks were pagans and they didn't like each other because one side was pagan and one was old. Well, you know, that is partially true. Persia is also pagan, but Israel's able to get along with them. The, the reason Greece is, is really an enemy of Israel is because Greece is aggressive. Greece is very, very aggressive. Uh, anybody want to take a stab at what language the, the Greek people speak and write? Chinese. Greek, okay. Uh, Jewish people, what is their language? Hebrew. 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 Um, but the Greeks want to kind of make everything in their empire look Greek and sound Greek and be Greek, all right? Um, whenever a nation takes over another nation, there's kind of two choices about how those two cultures are going to interact. The dominant nation can impose their culture on, on, the, on the minority, all right? That is what Greek, Greece does. Rome is going to handle that in a different way a little bit later on. But the Greeks really try to push all of this Greek stuff 
onto the Jews. And so what does this look like? Well, there's a lot of pressure to start doing everything in the Greek language, all right? Uh, that's going to be one of them. There's a pressure to start worshiping the Greek gods. Uh, Persia had given Israel a good deal of religious liberty. Greece doesn't do that for the most part. This is a little bit of an oversimplification. You guys know probably from like world history, the stuff with the Greeks is complicated. And there's a lot of different factions that come to power over time. I'm just painting with a really broad bug. Broad, how do you say that? Broad? Screw. Yeah. I was going to say brush, but that's too hard. BR, BR, back to back. So language, uh, religion is kind of imposed on them. Uh, one really big thing that the Greeks impose on them is uh, the Greeks are really famous for uh, athletic stuff. You know that? What comes down to us from the Greeks? The Olympics. The Olympics. And so the... Um, the Greeks really, really care a lot about sport, and they start, um, they have this place that they call the gymnasium, where sporting events are held, and where people go to train, and where people go, um, this is kind of a hangout spot, sort of like a, a gym today is, you know, um, I spelled that wrong, that should be an M, um, you know, you, you think about like RC3, you know, you go there, um, you work out with your buddies, you play basketball, something like that, you, you train, you, you play sport, right? The gymnasium is for that. Um, but the gymnasium is a super offensive thing to the Jews for a couple of reasons. One is everything that's done in the gymnasium, you do naked. Greeks are like super into that. You ever seen Greek artwork? No one in Greek artwork is wearing clothes. There's a place, if you're heading to Hickson, all right, um, if, if you're heading to Hickson, you get off at that exit, um, and there's that Clement's Antique place with all the statues out front. And like, you've seen this place before, right? All of that is like Greek, Greek stuff, right? And what is true about every statue over there? completely naked or you know there's a really nicely placed cloth like right here but uh, you know waist up you see everything right there's a celebration in the Greek mind there's a celebration of human strength and human beauty all right and so whenever you go to the gymnasium and you're doing these feats of athleticism and strength you you want to show off what you got right you want everybody to see those muscles flex and everything else too Okay, so the, the Jews are pretty upset about that. Historically, the Jews have been a, product, pretty, a, a fairly modest people. You know, they have a strong sexual ethic. Don't commit adultery, but, you know, there's stuff even beyond that as well. And so the gymnasium uh, is, is also a place where a lot of affairs happen. I wonder why. Um, it's a place of very rampant homosexuality. It's a place where rape occurs quite often. Um, prostitution, right? And the Greeks, you know, they're imposing all of this stuff on the cultures that they conquer. So they come to a place like Jerusalem, and not only is it we don't want Hebrew anymore, we want Greek, we don't want Yahweh anymore, we want these gods. Oh, and by the way, right beside your synagogue, we're going to build a gymnasium. And, and let's just be honest, you know, um, the gymnasium isn't a place where you go and then once you're there you get naked. It's a place where you just like go naked. 
So Jews are in there trying to have their synagogue service and completely naked people are just like walking to the gym right outside. All right. And then this is just like this, the center of sexual immorality and sin. And, and it's being built, you know, right next to synagogues, kind of on purpose. On top of that, Jewish men who maybe want to fit in, who want to be a part of Greek culture and Greek stuff, have a really hard time at the gymnasium. Anybody have a guess why? They have scars. They're circumcised. Greek people don't get circumcised. Greek people have a very, um, there's a stigma against circumcision. So whenever you maybe actually get a Jew who says, you know what, I'm actually fine with this. I'm actually okay with this. I would kind of like to be more Greek than I actually am. And they go to the gymnasium, they're stigmatized. They're made fun of. All right? This is, this is a, a, um, a lot of them um, try to, like, hide their, their circumcision, which is, you know, obviously not a very easy thing to do. So stuff like this keeps happening over and over again. The Greeks are very aggressive against the Jews. And whenever the Jews don't fall in line, the Greeks are fine resorting to what do you think? Huh? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> we maybe, 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 maybe you. Yeah. Um, the game is who can behead that person. No. Uh, I mean, maybe some of that, but but they're very comfortable resorting to military activity. All right. This is especially true of a few ruling families among the Greeks who eventually will come to power well after Alexander's death. Um, but they are, they're very, very comfortable uh, fighting uh, and being violent against the Jews. Um, eventually, what happens to Greece? Who beats Greece? Rome. Rome. All right. Uh, Rome will grant the Jews some sort of religious freedom. Uh, it's not as much as the Jews would want, but the Romans do grant them some religious freedom. Um, the Romans have kind of the opposite tendency of the Greeks. Whenever the Romans conquered Greece, whenever Greece fell and Rome came to power, did everyone start speaking Roman? What did they keep speaking? Yeah, they kept speaking and writing in Greek in the established language. So whereas the Greeks said, we really want to impose our culture on everyone else, the Romans had the opposite philosophy, and the Romans said, we want to assimilate. Um, or a better word would be, um, you guys, have you guys ever seen this word before? Appropriate? Have you ever heard of like... Um, people complain sometimes today about cultural appropriation. Have you ever heard that before? Right. Um, to appropriate means whatever culture we've conquered, we want the good stuff from their culture to become part of our culture. We want to bring it, whatever, whatever was good about Greece, we want that stuff to be Roman. Right. So we're going to keep their language. We're going to keep, uh, you know, some, um, by the way, Roman religion is what? Yeah, it's the Greek religion with different names for the gods. You see how that is just like appropriating what Greece already had. So Rome is, um, at least initially, um, 
you know, they're pretty comfortable to, to some extent giving the Jews some sort of religious freedom, giving them a little bit of wiggle room. Uh, that changes um, after the New Testament ends, kind of at the end of the New Testament especially. Uh, and we'll talk about that as time goes on. But Rome kind of has the, the opposite philosophy of Greece on a lot of that stuff. Okay. Questions on this? Okay. Um, let's see. Anybody heard of the Maccabees? Okay. Tomorrow we're going to finish up talking about the 400 silent years, and we want to think about um, from the end of the Old Testament, what is, uh, what's the book at the end of the Old Testament? Malachi. What's the first book of the New Testament? Matthew. Um, between these two books, have you ever noticed that the Jews have a very, very different theology? Um, who represents Jewish theology in Matthew? What group? Yeah, Pharisees. There's a group called the Sadducees, um, sometimes just called the Scribes. All right. Um, are these guys good guys or bad guys of the New Testament? Bad guys. Um, does Jesus seem impressed by their theology? No, he thinks they're false teachers. Paul does too. Back here, whenever we're in the last books of the Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, we're looking at Zechariah, Haggai, Malachi. Do you get the impression that the theology present in those books is wrong? It seems like the Bible is saying that this is all good stuff. So back here, there's, there's good theology. People are believing what they ought to be believing. But then somehow, by the time we get over here in the New Testament, the, the idea presented by Paul and presented by Jesus, those two especially, is that Jewish theology has taken a, a turn for the worse. There is some sort of change that has happened since the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Jesus in Jewish theology. You guys ever noticed that before? Like, you know, Jesus has a very positive view of the teachings of the Old Testament, and these people who claim to represent the teaching of the Old Testament, he has a very negative view of their teaching. Okay. So we want to talk about why that happens. We need to use this history to look at that, but we need to talk about why that happens and what those changes are tomorrow. And then we're going to jump into actually starting to study the four Gospels. All right. Tonight, you all should read Matthew chapters 5 through 7, which is a sermon that Jesus preaches. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. You guys need to read that tonight and come to the class tomorrow having read it. All right. You guys do your reading last night? Yes. Okay. I'll find out tomorrow if you have. You should probably expect a, a quiz on some of the stuff that you've read. Okay. So make sure that you're keeping up with it.